Just this, Just this week, I was, I was reading, reading about, about this kind of, of moment that we're in. It's this, this kind of post-truth, this kind of post-discourse moment where we don't even know how to have a conversation with one another about anything that matters. Things just devolve so quickly, right? So I was reading about this moment and referring to it as a kind of collective psychotic episode that's happening to us all. And the example that they gave was they, they pointed to a particular news network and they said, at this particular time, the unemployment rate was such, the number of jobs that had been creative in this period of time was such, and because of the person in power, the commentary from the news network was, this is a disaster. Everything is falling apart. The world is coming apart, it seems. Look how terrible of a job this person is doing. And the person who wrote up this article went just a few years separate from this moment when the unemployment rate was the exact same to the percentage point, the exact same. The number of jobs that had been created in a certain period of time were actually less than the amount of jobs that had been created by this other individual. And just because the person in power had different allegiances, belonged to a different kind of group or a different kind of party, this news network was saying, what an amazing job this leader is doing. Can we believe how well they're making good on the promises that they've made to us? No difference. Simply just a matter of allegiances and party and us versus them kind of nonsense. But this is something of the moment that we're living in. And this isn't just true for politics. This isn't just true for news media. I mean, that's low-hanging fruit, right? Those are the easy ones to see. But the reality is that everybody, and I mean everybody, is curating reality to fit their own kind of truth. That's what we're all doing all the time. Every piece of information we're taking and we're using and manipulating to fit our own truth. And what we have to decide now is we can either choose to recover from this, again, collective psychotic episode that we seem to find ourselves in. We can either recover or destroy one another. These are our options. And today's text, they, they deal with this kind of necessary, life-altering shifts of reality, specifically the kind of encounters with the divine that actually open up on us a kind of depth or a kind of darkness for us. More on that in a little bit. Let's look at these texts. The first, our Old Testament text today, is out of Isaiah chapter 6. And if you've been hanging out with Sanctuary for very long, you know last week we're talking about Jeremiah. And in uh, Jeremiah's text, this is the moment of his, his calling and his commission. We see the same thing here from Isaiah. So this is Isaiah 6. And this is, if you're familiar with the text, uh, his, his throne room vision, right? I'll just read a, a little bit of this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. Each one had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And then one called to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. 
His glory fills the whole earth. Isaiah is having this vision, this throne room vision. And then the foundations of the doorways shook, and the sound of their voice, and the temple was filled with smoke. And this is Isaiah's response to this moment. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips. I come from a people of unclean lips. And because my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and in his hand was a glowing coal that he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed and your sin is atoned for. Another translation says, Your guilt has departed and your sin has been blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who should I send? Who will go for us? I said, Here I am. Send me. Again, this is kind of a strange text, um, one that we're familiar with. This moment of calling, this moment of vision, this moment of being caught up in God's presence. And what I find so fascinating here is that as Isaiah is having this vision, as he's there before God, he's having this wild vision of angels flying, seraphim, there's burning coals, all kinds of things are happening in this moment. And what I find so striking here is that the thing Isaiah acknowledges, the thing that he has to name, that he has to recognize, is his own humanity, his own failing, the, the fact that he cannot stand in God's presence. Woe is me, right? And in this line, this immediate recognition of his humanity, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, I live among a people of unclean lips, all of this is true and untrue at the same time. It's true in the sense that Isaiah is unfit to do the work that God has called him to do, but it's also untrue in that God's nearness is not his woe. It's not something that he has to be terrified of, to be near to the presence of God. What he is discovering is that God's nearness is actually part of his healing. That unity with God is what this moment is offering him, not his disintegration. And in all of this recognition, there comes this moment of judgment. Isaiah rightly names those things in himself that are not yet right. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Live among a people of unclean lips. He's right to acknowledge it. He's wrong to think that it means distance, that it has to mean separation from God. And then this is the judgment. This is the moment of judgment when the seraphim brings the coal from the altar and touches his lips. Now, this is something I think we need. We need some work unlearning what we've known about judgment. If, if you're anything like me, you grew up being taught that judgment is, is fire. Judgment is destruction. And in some ways, we were taught that we need to keep separation from ourselves and from judgment. Like, we don't want God's judgment, 
Because judgment is for those unclean people. Judgment is for those people who haven't come to know Jesus. And the reason that Jesus is important is because Jesus has stood in our place and received this kind of judgment on our behalf. This is our fire insurance, right? That when we stand before God, we don't receive God's judgment. Jesus received it for us, saving us from God's judgment. But that's not the image that we get of God's judgment in the scriptures. The image that we get of God's judgment is actually one of a purifying, a cleansing fire. Not a destructive fire, not something that's out to destroy you, but something that's actually intended to make you who you were meant to be. This is the coal that touches Isaiah's lips. And this is the kind of judgment that we're all called to experience, that we place ourselves before God in such a way that all of those things that make us less of who we are, less of who we're intended to be, actually melt away from us. The judgment of God is, you are a paino. <laughs> That's what it looks like. You are beloved. You are a child of God. So let's take a moment to examine ourselves and to see what parts of ourselves have we attached to us that look contrary to being beloved, to being a child of God, to being a brother and sister among other brothers and sisters. Again, this is not about us becoming something or someone that we're not, but about seeing ourselves as we truly are, seeing ourselves as God sees us. This is that glowing coal that touches Isaiah's lips. And two things that I think are worth noting is that when Isaiah recognizes his humanity, recognizes his unworthiness in this moment. And when those coals to come and touch his lips, the response from God is this. Your guilt, your shame has departed, has left you. Your, your guilt has departed. Your sin has been cleansed, has been blotted out. This is the response to God's judgment in our lives. That when God's judgment comes for us, again, it's not destructive, it's not out to destroy us. God's judgment comes and it takes away our guilt. It takes away our shame. Because God is saying to Isaiah, you're rightly naming it, but you're carrying it in a way that's unfaithful. There is no room here in the presence of God for guilt and for shame. So it has departed you. Isaiah's response, of course, to this moment is, here I am. Here I am. God's judgment for Isaiah and for us, it draws out of us this, this spirit-led association that we come to ourselves like the prodigal does in the far country. That when we stand before God and we name our humanity and our guilt is departed from us, we suddenly have a sense of who we really are. Again, just like the prodigal out in the far country. We have this moment of seeing the I am that actually opens us up to being able to respond in a way that says, here I am. Who I am is someone who is desired Someone for whom 
was created to be in unity with God and with other people. A similar but altogether different scene that we've read about in today's gospel in Luke 5. And think about this moment that Jesus, <laughs> Jesus is a complete stranger. And he's not a fisherman. He's a carpenter. And like just the sheer audacity of this moment of Jesus going out to Peter and saying, oh, you haven't caught anything. I have some ideas for you. Like, I don't know how to do very many things. So if I ever come to your house and I'm like, you know how you should fix your plumbing? Like, these are bad ideas. And the sheer fact that, that Peter responds, sure. Like, let's go out to the deep and put out our nets. You have to know there's something in him that's like, okay, here we go. Jesus of Nazareth, let's go let down our nets, see what happens. And then, of course, we know exactly what happens. But Jesus tells them, put out into the depths, into the deep waters. Again, I think the emphasis for here is that to have these alteration of life moments, it's only possible in these kinds of depths, whether that's the depths of suffering, the depths of doubt, the depths of prayer. What Jesus is showing us is that these kinds of moments, these life-altering, reality-shifting moments, they don't happen in the shallows. They only happen in these depths. And depths are scary. Depths are dark. I don't know if you've watched uh, Will Smith's series. What's that called? Uh, Welcome to Earth. And the man descends into some depths. He is like out to become an adventurer, right? And so he's going down into the bottom of the ocean and into caverns and into all of these places where you would not find Father Paul. <laughs> but the point is the same. That for us to find out something that is true and real about ourselves requires these moments of moving into the depths. And it's in these depths where Peter says to Jesus, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Again, the same posture as Isaiah that here is someone who has just realized that they are in the presence of the Lord, and the response is the same. Woe is me. Depart from me. I am a man of unclean lips. I am a sinful man. And just like Isaiah, he, it, this, this comment is both true and untrue. It's true that Simon is a sinner, like all of us are sinners. But it's also, again, untrue in that he still thinks God desires distance from sinners and that sinlessness is somehow what earns God's nearness. But this is the opposite of the announcement of the gospel. This is the opposite of the incarnation. The incarnation announces to us that God has been brought near to us. As we see later in Hebrews, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The point is not to be sinless in order to get God to come near to us. It's that we can recognize our humanity, acknowledge our sin, and know that God is still drawing near to us. 
This also shows us the beginning of this kind of genuine self-awareness that Simon possesses. The one, he is in fact in the Lord's presence. And two, he is in fact unfit for that presence. But the word that Jesus speaks to him and to us is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. This is what has to be unlearned in so many of us that like Isaiah, we have been people who have been led into God's presence. And like Simon Peter, we have at times had a kind of self-awareness of ourselves and of our sin. But then so many of us were taught to fear God's judgment. What we see is that the word God speaks to us at that moment is do not be afraid. Your guilt has departed. Your sin has been blotted out. This is what has to be unlearned in us. And when we hear those words, our response will be, it ought to be, to lean into Jesus, not away from him, not to hide from him like Peter wanted to. Our response when we hear these words, do not be afraid, your guilt has departed, your sin has been blotted out, our response will be a kind of solidarity with others, not isolating ourselves from others. It's what we see with Isaiah when he says, here I am. And it's what we see in Peter when he leaves everything and follows Jesus. I've been fortunate enough to be part of this cohort of uh, other pastors from around the country working with this organization called Telos. And Telos is a, they, they call themselves a peacemaking organization. And so they're teaching people practices and principles of peacemaking, specifically in parts of the world that are in desperate need of peacemaking. And so back in November, I took a trip with them, with these other pastors. We went to New Orleans. We went to Jackson, Mississippi. We went to Selma. We went to uh, Montgomery. And so much of what we're experiencing, so much of what we're seeing is how how unbelievably separated we all still are. It's it's a trip I haven't talked about a whole lot in this space because I'm still processing it and trying to learn (laughs) what I'm supposed to learn from that moment. But as we've continued to have conversations with this cohort, we've been talking about these, again, these these principles of, of peacemaking. And one of these principles is that change is always possible. That even as we bump up against these difficult, difficult situations, impossible situations, these spaces where it seems like peace can't really be realized, what we have to hold in our hearts is that change is always possible. And in this conversation, we were trying to discern between, you know, change is, is, is an inevitability, So of course it's always possible, but how do we discern between positive change and negative change? And so much of what we see between positive change and negative change is this, is that positive change always leads us back to one another, where negative change leaves us feeling isolated, leaves us feeling alone. 
So as we try to navigate the world and as we try to navigate what God is doing in our own hearts and in our own lives, we sense this moment of change is upon us. And what we have to discern is, is this change actually moving us toward God and toward one another? Or is it moving us away? Is it causing us to separate ourselves from one another, to isolate ourselves, to start and draw boundaries between us and them. The challenge that we face is that inevitably, even after, maybe especially after experiencing God's presence, the goodness of God's judgment in our lives, even after we're told not to be afraid, even after we're told that our shame has left us, that our sin has been wiped out, even after we volunteer ourselves and realize this kind of unity that we have with God and with one another, here I am, even after all of that, we still have moments where we can't really believe it. Our beloved Bishop Ed always refers to this as the atheist flu. And he would say that it's okay to come down with the atheist flu every once in a while, but we ought to recover we shouldn't stay there. If your atheist flu turns into, <laughs> turns into a pandemic, maybe there's some work that needs to be done in us. This is something of what Paul is writing about in 1 Corinthians. This is out of 1 Corinthians 15. And Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and we shouldn't have any feeling that like Paul's writing to them in a way that they, they believe themselves to be unfaithful and need some kind of correcting, right? Like the Corinthians are a very pious and very faithful community of followers of Jesus. And still Paul is coming back to them and saying, what you believe about these things is a little off. We've got to make some changes here. And so it's not that Paul is the faithful one talking to all these unfaithful people. These are people who are doing their, their best. But Paul has to acknowledge the fact that they have actually substituted something that they believe about the resurrection that just needs to be resisted. And so one of the things that's happened is they've settled for a kind of syncretism. They've, they've essentially taken their Greek culture and applied it into the gospel in a way that makes the gospel a little more palatable. And so what they're wrestling through is this business of the resurrection. It's the idea of a, a physical bodily resurrection. And remember, first century Jews, bodies were icky, like physicality was kind of gross. And so there was just this natural proclivity to just resist the kind of physical stuff. And so the thing that Paul is trying to correct in them is to say, you've settled for this kind of spiritual resurrection, these ideas about resurrection, and we need to resist it because it is an embodied, a physical kind of resurrection that involves our bodies and the bodies of our neighbors. The reality of the resurrection is much messier than what we want to believe. And so what does Paul do in this, in this text? He's saying, you've all doubted the physicality of this resurrection. You've exchanged it for this other kind of thing. But let me remind you, and he goes on to list all of these people who witnessed 
Christ's resurrection. These people that Jesus came and appeared to, that they had conversations and shared meals with Jesus. He points them back to the faithful people, some of them, he says, who are still alive. And he says, go have a conversation with them. If you don't believe me, go talk to them because they saw it with their own eyes. They ate in the presence of Jesus. They laughed with him and had conversations with him. And when we just can't believe it anymore, when the atheist flu comes knocking, this is what we need. We need people who, in the middle of these kind of psychotic episodes that we find ourselves in, we need faithful witnesses who can point us to the truth in our own lives. We need those people who can say, no, 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 you're a pano. You're a bearish. You're a Bartel. <laughs> These people who can say to us, no, 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 this is who you are and who you're called to be. And when we say, how do you know? It's because they have experienced resurrection in their own lives. People who have been faithful witnesses to what Christ is doing in the world. These are the voices that we need in this moment. And here's why. Because even after you experience the presence of God, we will inevitably be led into darkness. I mentioned we would come back to this. And I have to be careful. This is not the darkness of evil as we often think about darkness. This is the darkness of the creative kind of work that God does in the world. This is the darkness of creation, before let there be light. This is the darkness of the cloud that followed Israel in the wilderness. This is the darkness of Isaiah's message of oppression that comes right after the portion that we read. The word that God gives Isaiah to tell the people of God is that destruction's coming for you. Oppression is coming for you. Exile is coming from you. You're going to be separated from the people that you've known and the places that you've known. Isn't that good news? That's the kind of darkness we're talking about. The darkness of Mary's womb waiting for the light of the world to be born. The darkness of her son's tomb as we wait with anticipation for resurrection. This is the kind of darkness that we find ourselves in. These are the kinds of dark places that all of us inevitably at one point or another are going to be led into. Why? Why do we have to be led into these dark places? It's because it only happens, life only happens for us in the depths. Growth for us is only possible in the depths. This is what we mean when we talk about the dark night of the soul. These moments where our roots grow down deep. This is where new life begins. And what we see at the end of Isaiah 6, after he has this vision, after he has this message for the people of God that doesn't sound like good news, it says this, Isaiah says to God, until when? 
How long is all this going to happen? And God says to him, until cities lie in ruins without inhabitants, until houses are without people, until the land is ruined and desolate and the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land. Though a tenth will remain in the land, it will be burned again like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. The holy seed is the stump. The holy seed is the stump. What is God saying to Isaiah? He's saying that what will be left of us after all of this, after facing the truth of us, after witnessing this kind of judgment of God that burns away from us everything that's not really who we are, what's left is this stump, this desolation, this charred, scorched earth. But what God says is that the holy seed is its stump, that what is left is where new life will begin for us. Maybe that's something of where we are. That in the middle of this psychotic episode we seem to find ourselves in where no one knows what's true and what's untrue and everyone, and I mean everyone, is twisting reality to their own narratives and the earth is scorched. Maybe it's there that new life is actually possible for us. And the word that we need to hear is do not be afraid. Your guilt and your shame has departed and your sin has been blotted out. Taking that kind of posture will bring new life into the world. Let this be the message on our lips in a world that is hurting for truth. Your guilt and your shame has departed. Don't be afraid. Your sin has been blotted out. Amen.